Hey guys, just before we begin this podcast, I would like to tell you about our sponsors, McCann Fitzgerald, who we are incredibly lucky to have as a sponsor, as they are one of the top law firms in the country. One of the things we've noticed about them, after speaking with so many different law firms, is that while clearly being a top-tier firm, they also have a clear human touch to what they do and are very forward-thinking. Partners are very involved with graduates and trainees, which seems to have cultivated this incredible culture for people to stay for a long time because they enjoy it and feel part of the community. So if you're looking for a career in law, definitely check out their career site, as it seems to be a really great place to work. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. Hi guys, welcome to the podcast. It's Isabel here and today I am absolutely honoured to be interviewing the former president of the High Court, Mr Justice Peter Kelly. Mr Justice Kelly has been described as a fearless, forthright and formidable legal force. After establishing himself as a remarkable barrister, representing several high-profile clients, he was appointed a judge of the High Court. During his career, he gained much recognition for his admirable handling of cases concerning those most vulnerable in our society. He played a pivotal role during the aftermath of the financial crisis, condemning banks, property developers and business people. Mr Justice Kelly spent time in the High Court, the Commercial Court and the Court of Appeal before returning to the High Court and becoming President. Mr Justice Kelly retired in 2020 after 24 years on the bench. Thank you, President, for being here today. I know everyone at Grad Life is so excited to have you feature in the legal series, and I'm really looking forward to learning about your career. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. I guess the the point in time I want to start at was when you first developed an interest in law. So what sparked your interest in the law and made you choose to then go on and study law at university? Well, I developed an interest very early in life. When I was 12 years of age, my late father, who was a civil servant, thought it would be good for my education to see the law courts in action. He worked in the chief state solicitor's office and he brought me on a trip to the four courts. And from that moment on, the bug bit. I was completely enthralled at what was going on. And I began to read a bit about law cases, read a bit about the law. And I used to make trips to the law courts to watch cases going on when I was in secondary school. Instead of going to the cinema, I went to the four courts or to Green Street and I saw cases taking place. And I decided at that stage that I wanted to be a barrister. I had no interest in becoming a solicitor. I can't really explain why that was so, but the barrister seemed to me to have such an attraction about the life and the work um, that I became very interested in it. And becoming a barrister wasn't really going to be an option as far as I was concerned in that I was the eldest of four children. My father was a civil servant. I would have been the first person in my family to go to university and I had no family connections of any sort in the law. And my father knew enough about the practice at the bar to be able to tell me that family connections would be very important if one were to be successful. Now, bear in mind, I'm going back I was leaving school at the end of the 1960s to be going to college in 1970. And um, he also, however, had a lot of interesting things to tell me about the law because working in the Chief State Solicitor's Office, he had originally been in the conveyancing end of things, which was rather dull and boring as far as I was concerned. But then he moved to work in the section of the office that dealt with trials in the Central Criminal Court and in the Court of Criminal Appeal, as it then was. 
So he was regularly going to court and mixing with barristers and solicitors and dealing with all of the administrative side of those matters. And then when the special criminal court uh, was reanimated in 1972, he was heavily involved in that. So he became aware of the fact that it was possible to go into the civil service as an executive officer if you were successful off the leaving cert. And if you were fortunate enough to be sent to the high court to work in the offices of the superior courts, they gave you facilities to study for the bar. And there were a number of notable people who had followed that career path. Uh, the former Chief Justice Liam Hamilton um, and a number of other well-known barristers. So I decided that if I was to be a barrister, that's how I would have to do it. So I did the executive officer competition off the leaving cert. I was successful in that. And fortunately, there was a single vacancy in the superior courts. I was appointed to that and they gave me the facilities to study for the bar. And the deal was you worked in the office and you went and did your lectures and then you came back to the office. So I wasn't what you might call a full time student. I didn't have a lot of time to sit around drinking coffee and shooting the breeze. But it was a great training because working at the High Court Central Office, the nerve center of the operation of the High Court. So you had to familiarize yourself with the rules of court, the practice and procedure of the court. And of course, every day you were dealing with solicitors. They got to know you, you got to know them. And that was how my interest was fired. And that's how I proceeded. And then I qualified at the bar. I did reasonably well in my exams. I got first class honors, which enabled me to apply for a job as an administrative officer in an open competition. And I was successful in that. And I was I asked to be sent to the Department of Justice as an administrative officer. Now, all the time, I still wanted to go to practice at the bar. But by the time I qualified, I had no money. You had to pay your own fees, even though you were being paid the civil service salary. So I was very fortunate in going to the Department of Justice, where I was appointed to the EEC division, as it was called. Ireland was newly joined as a member. They sent me off to Amsterdam University to do a summer course in European law. And for the following two years, I had what some people might think a fascinating career of being on a plane every second week or other, going to either Brussels or Luxembourg to represent Ireland, either as part of or as the sole delegate. I was all of 23 years of age at this stage. Uh, we were newly in the European Union and there was a great shortage of lawyers in the public service. So I did that for two years. And at the end of that, I had saved enough money to act as a cushion for my first few years at the bar. And I decided that I was going to resign. There was no such thing as a career break in those days. I'm sure my father was having a nervous breakdown at the prospect of a son who was resigning from his permanent and pensionables um, to go to practice at the bar. And I was delighted that I made the decision because I think it would have eaten away at me if I'd stayed in the public service. I would always have wondered what would have happened had I gone to the bar. I went to the bar and it lived up to my expectations. And that launched me on what has been, certainly from my point of view, a very fascinating and interesting career. So I was an early starter, 12 years of age. And you were called to the bar in 1975. 1973, 1973. And I went to practice in 1975. I'm just wondering what it was like around then for, for a young barrister at that time. How did you find the experience? Did it live up to, to what you thought it would? Well, it was utterly different to what it was like now. In those days, there was just a single law library in the four courts. 
there were less than 350 members of the law library. At that time, there were 2,300 members of the bar practicing in England and Wales, which had 10 times our population. There are now 2,300 barristers practicing in Ireland, and we still don't have 10 times or anything like it of the population that we had then. Because it was all in the one room, essentially, that the old law library, everybody knew everyone. And consequently, you've got to have a relationship with all of your colleagues, which doesn't exist any longer because it's simply too big. It's now located in different locations, four different buildings. Many barristers are out working in chambers. So that cohesiveness has been lost. The cohesiveness was good from the point of view of building up professional relationships. It was also good from the point of view of discipline, because if you were to try and pull a dirty trick on a colleague, which is anathema to the bar and to the whole notion of trust between barristers, literally by four o'clock that evening, the word was out. So nobody attempted to do such a thing. So it was almost self-disciplining. It was a, an amazing place. I mean, people were smoking at that stage. You could smoke in the place, full of books, full of papers, and a smog of, of smoke. I was never a smoker. I hated it. But literally, nowadays, it would be regarded as a health hazard. And you also had barristers who practiced in every area of the law. Barrister would be doing a criminal trial today, a civil case tomorrow. The whole notion of specialization really hadn't arrived. And consequently, um, you had barristers who were skilled in every aspect of the law. Nowadays, with specialization, no barrister would, who practices, let's say, in the area of commercial law would contemplate going up to the criminal courts of justice to, do, uh, to conduct a, a criminal trial. It, it, they're almost like two separate legal systems. Um, just to give you an idea of how far we were from what we are now, um, there were no telephones as such in the law library. Uh, you, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had to go to the switchboard and produce a little chit that you'd paid for and give it to one of the telephonists who would dial a number for you. And then you'd be sent to one of about eight or ten um, phones on walls around the law library with an acoustic hood. And that's how you made your call out. Incoming calls went to the switch and you were paged. Your name was paged on a public address system and you were then directed to one of these um, acoustic hoods with a, an instrument underneath it. So it was utterly different, completely different to what it is now. But it was a fascinating place because there were so many people of interest and so many people who figure in the history of Ireland. I mean, at that stage, WT uh, uh, um, John A. Costello was, was practicing at the bar, former Taoiseach. And his son, Declan Costello, was the attorney general when I, when I went into practice. And there were retired politicians, former government ministers, and serving TDs and serving senators, and people from a whole variety of backgrounds, because one of the things about the bar was that it often provided a second career for people. So we had former school teachers, former university lecturers, a number of doctors who had changed over, a number of dentists. And so there was a very wide group of people with all sorts of different life backgrounds. And if you could get them to talk, um, you had a lot of interesting information to pick up. And perhaps one of the most interesting people was the then law librarian, 
who was known as the grouper because he had been a group captain in the RAF. And he had been up at Oxford studying in 1914 when the First World War broke out. He was an Irish man. He volunteered for service in a, an infantry regiment, the Oxford Rifles. But when the Royal Flying Corps, the precursor to the RAF, was set up in 1916, he volunteered and he flew missions over France in aircraft so antiquated that the propeller was behind and they pushed you along. And he would regale me of an evening with stories about his life behind the lines in the First World War. He then stayed on when the RAF began. He was a founder member of it also. And during the Second World War, he specialized in flying boats and he flew flying boat missions all around the place. So there were all sorts of very interesting people like that. I could go on for the next hour about conversations I had with the grouper, but we've other things on the agenda. I'm just wondering, you hear to these days so much about the competitive nature of, of the profession. And from what you're describing, it sounds like the bar was incredibly collegiate. Do you think, you know, a lot of your learning came from being around these people? There is no doubt about it, but a lot of learning comes from being around these people. It was collegiate, but it was also competitive. But I don't think that the edge of competition, which I sometimes hear recounted by times as to what's happening now, was there then. I was very fortunate in that uh, when I worked in the central office of the High Court, a barrister who regularly came down, a man called Tom Smith, offered a devilship to me. They still called them devils then. I think more often nowadays it's pupils. And, and I was delighted to devil with him. And he had a very extensive practice in planning law and local government law in particular. And he would bring you into cases and hand over cases to you. So within a very short time, I was dealing with um, lots of colleagues on an equal basis. One of the things I found very difficult to get used to was, as far as the law library was concerned, everybody was on Christian name terms. And you could go up and ask anybody a problem that you might have. You could put the problem to them to get their advice. So if you went up to somebody who was in their 70s or 80s and still practicing, it was a bit strange for a young fellow to be going up and saying, hello, Kevin, or hello, John. But that's the way it worked. And people did sit down and give you of their time. So you learned a lot like that. And another way you learned, I got a lot of sound advice from my master, but one piece of sound advice was, if you have time on your hands, as young barristers do, don't waste it by going drinking coffee. Go into court and watch what's going on in court. And that's advice I would give to law students and to junior barristers, because it's one thing learning the law in the textbooks. It's quite another thing to see that law in application. And the best way to do that is to go and watch it in operation in court. And almost by a process of osmosis, you pick it up. You see the dynamic between the judge and the barrister, the legal points being made, how to make an objection, how to deal with the jury, how to deal with the judge sitting alone. Huge experience and always to be valued. I hope I have my dates right here, but you became a senior counsel in 1986. That's correct, yes. Could you maybe briefly explain, even for the listener's sake, um, your experience of the difference between the roles of a junior counsel and senior counsel? Yeah, at that stage, I was um, 11 years at the junior bar, and that was fairly early to be taking silk. But I was fortunate in that I had then a very extensive junior practice. And 
the reason that I suppose I decided to take Silk then was that the then Chief Justice, Tom Finley, sent for me and I went in to see him in chambers and he said to me that he felt it was time that I should apply to take Silk. It was rather earlier than I had anticipated, but it was a great honour to be given that indication by a man of his standing. And I took his advice and I applied. What was the biggest difference that it made in my life? Well, a reduction in the enormous amount of paperwork that one had to do. The scourge of the junior council's life is the drafting of pleadings and in particular particulars, particulars of negligence, particulars of injuries, particulars of breaches of duty and the drafting of affidavits. And my practice was largely in the area of commercial and chancery law. So I did an awful lot of work involving injunctions, the obtaining of interim injunctions and interlocutory injunctions with lengthy affidavits that should be up till the small hours of the morning dictating. And when you take silk, that disappears. You then have to settle somebody else's draft. Now, let me say, sometimes you'd prefer to start from scratch when you'd be presented with the draft because it's like correcting somebody else's homework. But however, uh, that was a great relief. The difference, of course, is that as senior counsel, you're now in the front row. You now are in charge of the case. You, you have to make the decisions and you can't really look to anybody else. You're the captain of the ship, so to speak. So it certainly gave rise to an improvement in the quality of life from the point of view of the reduction in paperwork. But the increase on the damage to the nerve ends comes about as a result of being in the front line and having to make decisions and sometimes split second decisions uh, during the course of a trial with nobody to confer with. But um, I never regretted taking silk and I didn't regret doing it at the time that I did. When I was looking up your career as a barrister alone, um, we could do an interview, a whole interview on just you as a barrister. I'm looking at a list of some of your clients during your time as a barrister, and it's really astonishing names sticking out at me. Aga Khan, Ben Dunn, the then, then director of Dunn Stores, and victims of the Stardust Fire. But what I want to ask you is, during your time as a senior counsel, are there any cases that stood out to you the most or were particularly interesting or perhaps even your favourite? Well, I have to say, I was never bored with any case. And the cases that didn't make it into the headlines were just as interesting as the cases that did. I suppose the ones that were probably most interesting from the point of view of public interest would have been some of the ones that you've mentioned. Perhaps the one that attracted most attention would have been the Irish distillers case um, a, a big dispute between Perno Recar in relation to the takeover of Irish distillers, where we had to seek the enforcement of a verbal contract for the for sale of shares. And of course, it was a highly sensitive case from a commercial point of view. And this was long before the days of the commercial court, but time was of the essence. And I was co-silk with Brian McCracken, who subsequently was a High Court and Supreme Court judge. And we brought that case from start to trial, a full trial, and appealed to the Supreme Court. We won in the High Court, we won in the Supreme Court, and that all took place within eight weeks. Um, and so it was, it was hugely demanding and very, very interesting. And it was unusual, specific performance of a contract 
for the sale of shares, which didn't have to be in writing or evidenced in writing, and where there was a conflict of testimony between um, our principal witness, who was now Mr. Dermot Desmond, who was less well known then, and where the principal witness for the defence was a man called Jim Flavin, who was the chief executive of a company called DCC, which is still about. So I suppose from the point of view of a quick trial, all sorts of law, all sorts of fact, and a lot of dispute and a lot of public interest in it, that was probably one. The Aga Khan case um, that you mentioned was interesting too, because I got to meet the Aga Khan and I, I had to actually go over and spend a weekend um, in his establishment in France. I, I have no interest in horses or horse racing, but it was quite fascinating to see the spread and a lot of dealings with him. And then I took him in, in, his, in his evidence. Uh, the trial judge was, was Mr. Justice Morris. And um, the defendant was an equally well-known person, a man called Firestone of the Firestone Tire family. And he had married um, one of the Johnson and Johnson children, a Johnson and Johnson heiress. So there was all sorts of money and fame on either side of the case. So that was probably, that was very interesting as well. And the Aga Khan was the head of a sect, a Muslim sect. And of course, he was giving evidence under oath. So the oath had to be administered on the Quran, which was unusual in those days. And of course, if he had not been believed, it would have had very significant implications for him. But he was believed and we won. Um, so that was an interesting, an interesting case as well. So you established yourself as a highly respected barrister. And in 1996, you were appointed a judge of the High Court. Now, this question is going to seem very trivial to you, but when I told my friends and fellow law students that I was interviewing you today, the most common question thrown back at me was, can you ask them how you become a judge? As in, what's the process? Do you just get a nice phone call one afternoon or is it a much longer process than that? Well, it's an interesting question. And it's, I, I was appointed at the time when the system was changing. Up to 1995, the way you would be appointed for the most part would be the attorney general of the day would approach somebody whom he thought would be a good candidate and see if they were interested. Or there were instances where barristers would make known their interest to the attorney general. But in 1994, 1995, there was the Harry Whelahan case and this was a case of Harry Whelan, who had been the Attorney General, who was appointed President of the High Court, straight from being Attorney General to being President of the High Court, and remained President of the High Court for three days, and then resigned in circumstances of great controversy. And anybody who's interested can read all about it. It's in the newspapers, it's in the books. As a result of which, there was a decision made by the then government to change the method of appointment and to set up the Judicial Appointments Advisory Board. So that meant that a candidate would have to apply on a standard form to this body, which would give advice to the government as to whether a person was suitable for appointment as a judge or not. Um, so I was one of the first appointees under that system. But of course, I was at that stage 45 years of age, which was quite a young age for somebody who might be thinking of going to the bench. And frankly, I wasn't thinking of going to the bench at that stage. I always had an aspiration to go to the bench 
um, a sort of at the end of my career as a barrister, but I was never involved in politics and politics played and to this day still plays a part and indeed has to play a part in that under the constitution, judges are appointed by the president on the advice of the government and the government is composed of politicians. Um, but I really was a sort of a hybrid because I did get a tap on the shoulder from the then Attorney General who indicated that he thought that if I wished, I should apply. Now, he wasn't holding out anything, but he, a nod is as good as a wink, as they say, and he felt that I should apply. And I was then in a dilemma, having got that nod, do I now apply or not? If I don't, I may never got, get that tap on the shoulder again. So I decided after agonizing over it for quite a bit that I would apply and rather to my surprise and um, within a very short period of time, I remember getting a telephone call on a Sunday night to say your name will be before the cabinet on Tuesday if you want to back out now is the time and I really hadn't expected that and didn't expect it that soon so I had two sleepless nights the Sunday night and the Monday night but I didn't back out and I was appointed. And do I regret it? No. Um, I loved being a barrister. I greatly enjoyed it. But I loved being a judge as well. And I found it equally interesting, not as lucrative. Um, and anybody who's going on the bench takes a fair hit um, from the point of view of their earnings. But there are more things in life than money. And um, I enjoyed every minute of being a judge just as much as I enjoyed being a barrister. So you worked in the High Court and then the Commercial Court and then the Court of Appeal, but you returned to the High Court on becoming president. And it's one of those situations, again, where we could do a whole interview on just one of those positions. But what court did you find the most interesting to preside over? I think I could fairly say that I enjoyed being a trial judge and the, the most interesting was the presidency of the High Court. Um, I greatly enjoyed setting up and being the first presiding judge for 10 years of the commercial court. It was a fiercely busy court. Um, I enjoyed being in charge of the judicial review list before that. And before that, again, I was in charge of the chancery list. I enjoyed all of those. I liked my time in the Court of Appeal and it was a new experience to have colleagues because you sit as three for the most part and to have colleagues to discuss the case with. But the president of the High Court has particular jurisdiction, apart from having to run the High Court, the president of the High Court looks after the affairs of wards of court. And I think from a human interest point of view, there was no more interesting list than that. And I think I probably have the greatest ability to make a difference to people's lives looking after wards of court. The president also looks after the disciplinary lists and as you know, bodies like the Medical Council, the Dental Council, the Law Society don't have any power to exercise serious disciplinary measures over their members who may misbehave without going to the High Court as a result of the decision back in 1960 in read the Solicitors Act, where the Supreme Court held that the disciplinary committee of the Law Society was exercising a judicial function when it purported to strike off solicitors and that it couldn't do so, that that was reserved to the judiciary. So all of these other bodies now who exercise statutory disciplinary 
jurisdiction over members of the profession all have to have their cases sent to the High Court and they are sent and dealt with for the most part by the President of the High Court. So I found those two jurisdictions very interesting, but the wards of court most particularly so, and it's a jurisdiction that gets not a lot of attention, but which makes a huge difference to the lives of, of people. And of all of the cases that I dealt with there, this is probably of particular relevance to people of your age and students would be the ever increasing numbers of young people and young women in particular suffering from anorexia nervosa. And they would, if, if they reached so serious a condition, and sadly many of them did, where they had lost the ability to have capacity to make decisions concerning their own welfare, applications would be made to have them admitted to wardship and it would then fall to me to decide on what treatment was appropriate for them. And sadly, sometimes in this country, we didn't have the necessary facilities. I had to make orders for them to be sent to specialist centres in England. Um, anorexia nervosa is a disease, psychiatric illness, which has the highest fatality rate of any psychiatric illness. One in five die from it. So you're conscious that you're making enormously important decisions, really life and death decisions concerning these young people. But it was also a most rewarding jurisdiction because in, in most instances, they ultimately came right. And when I came to retire, I was astonished at a number of them who wrote to me, read about my retirement in the newspaper. And it, of course, occurred just a few months ago during the pandemic. So the usual valedictory speeches and ceremonies didn't take place. But I was astounded to get letters from people who had been in wardship and who were grateful for the decisions that were made, even though at the time they may not have, have welcomed them. So I suppose looking over it all, a lot of the decisions I was involved in the commercial court were involved with money. Um, whereas these other cases, you know, made a real difference to people's lives. And I'd say that was probably the most interesting. The last five years of my career as president were probably the most interesting. I think that that answer kind of ties in nicely to my next question. Um, I think one of the reasons you're admired by so many students and lawyers alike is your, your independent and I guess apolitical tendencies. You were consistently firm even when making a decision which might provoke a response from the government. Um, I'm thinking of you know, a case that every law student studies or will study, um, the case of TD versus Minister for Education. Um, maybe I'll just briefly explain that it was a case concerning the state failing in its constitutional duties to provide secure facilities to minors and a case um, that really, because it's one of those human interest case, I think sits and strikes law students. When you're making these landmark decisions that somewhat go against the grain or go against what people might have expected of you. Is there an internal conflict or is there any part of you that questions yourself? Well, the decision itself, of course, I was very conscious of the separation of powers. And if you read it, you'll see that I was, as far as I was concerned, I didn't consider myself to be trespassing into an area that was properly that of the executive. And I reached that conclusion because I wasn't making policy. The policy had already been decided upon by the government. They had indicated on a number of previous occasions that they were going to carry out certain work so as to ensure 
that the constitutional right identified by Mr. Justice Gagan in the case of FN was given effect to. And I had adjourned the matter on a number of occasions to allow them to do so. And they failed. And they failed as a result of which a whole cohort of young people who were in need of that sort of facility weren't going to get it. And it wasn't going to be of any use to them in a number of years time because they were no longer going to be young people. And so the damage was done. And despite giving the government many opportunities to give effect to what it said it would do, it didn't. And I invited the minister then to give an undertaking and the undertaking wasn't forthcoming. And in those circumstances, I took the view that in making the government live up to its own word in circumstances where a clear constitutional obligation had been identified, the High Court would be failing in its duty if it didn't see to the implementation by the executive in the manner chosen by it to carry out its obligations to the young people. So I was conscious that it might be controversial, but I was very alive to the importance of not trespassing beyond the powers of the court. And I took the view that I wasn't. And then it went to the Supreme Court and a different view was taken by the majority. It was a minority view which supported uh, my approach. So I'd have to say I wasn't all that conscious of it, however likely to give rise to a huge amount of trouble. In this sense, I had made a similar order previously and the state had not appealed it and the state had implemented it. And in the judgment in TD, I set that out. And I felt now I had to do the same again. I think the thing that changed between the two decisions was a new attorney general. And the new attorney general took a different view as to the powers of the court to that of his predecessor who did not appeal the earlier decision and the state got on with the job. Um, and he was successful in persuading the majority in the Supreme Court of a, of a different view. And I know the decision has been the subject of much academic writing thereafter. And um, I don't know what the present score is, but at one stage, the academics favored my view rather than the views of the majority in the Supreme Court, but that may have changed. I haven't looked at it in, in recent times. No point crying over spilt milk. No, no. Um, I guess another question that leads on from that is, when you're making decisions concerning socioeconomic rights or decisions that you know are going to affect countless lives, do you feel a huge pressure on yourself? Yes, you feel pressure on, in every decision that you're going to make, even if it's only going to affect two people because they're going to be bound by your decision and it's going to make a difference to their life. And I think if you were flippant about it, well, you wouldn't really be doing your job as a judge. The more people that are likely to be affected, I suppose, the greater the pressure. Um, what you have to do in accordance with the declaration that you made on taking up office, you have to do the right thing. And you certainly shouldn't be looking over your shoulder or in the rear view mirror to see whether this is going to be an unpopular decision, either with politicians or the press. That's no part of a judge's function. You have to do what you undertook to do on your appointment, and that's to do your best to give rise to a fair judgment without fear or favour or malice or ill will to the litigants that are in front of you. And I think it's a very dangerous thing if judges 
were to be swayed by publicity. And sometimes, as you know, judges have been heavily criticized for their decisions. Uh, in fact, in England, I think it has gone further for the famous enemies of the people uh, headline, I think, from one of the English newspapers at the time when the Brexit decision was given, which was really quite an appalling attack upon judges endeavoring to do justice as they saw it, all perfectly proper to criticize a decision, but a, an ad hominem approach like that and to so describe was really, I thought, um, the, the worst attack that I'd seen on, on judges in the public press. But judges simply have to be impervious to that. You were in the profession for an incredibly long time, and I'm sure you're still involved. But I'm wondering over the, the course of your career, what, well, you've kind of mentioned them earlier, but what were the changes you witnessed in the barrister profession and, and more broadly speaking, the legal, the legal professions? Well, there are so many. Well, as you know, it's very controversial at the moment concerning uh, personal injury cases. When I came to practice at the bar, personal injury actions were tried by juries. So every case involving a road traffic accident or a factory accident involved the impaneling of a jury. And the insurance lobby said that jury awards were altogether too high. And that's why we were paying such high premium for insurance. So the juries must be abolished. So the juries were abolished. And then these cases fell to be dealt with by judges alone. So that was one huge difference. So that whole swathe of work was now going to be a judge sitting alone. So high court juries are comparative rarities now, only impaneled for defamation cases and civil claims for assault. By the way, just to continue the narrative, then an insurance lobby said that judges' awards were too high, so we must get the cases out of the courts, and PIAB was set up. And now we've had PIAB. And now judges' awards are still too high. and We're still waiting for the premier to go down. So there's nothing new under the sun, I'm afraid. That was one huge difference. Another enormous difference, of course, was the arrival of women into the law library. Because when I went in, the number of women was very tiny. I think less than 20 of the 350 were women. And now in excess of 50% of the library, I think, are, are women. So that brought about a complete change, a very pleasant change, I have to say. Um, and a sort of, I suppose, some of the, the ways of some of the old codgers who were there had to change in order to accommodate the fact um, that ladies had now arrived on the scene. That was another huge difference. The other difference is specialization, that gone are the days of a general practitioner. So barristers are now specializing in areas. And indeed, quite a bit of what formerly would have been the work of barristers has been taken by solicitors. When I started practice at the bar, there was quite a substantial conveyancing bar. Barristers who hardly ever went into court, they did conveyancing. That's all but completely gone. There were quite a lot of barristers who were advising on tax and, and very few solicitors who would do so. And that is almost completely gone because tax advice now largely comes from solicitors. And then, of course, the growth in the bar itself, the huge amount of numbers, the fact that the library is now in four different locations, two in Church Street, one in the four courts itself, one in the criminal courts of justice. All of that is an enormous change to the dynamic and the life of a barrister. And that's just to touch upon some. There are many others. You mentioned personal injuries and how it's been a bit controversial recently. And 
I was thinking about not maybe a controversial issue, but bringing it back to the the bar. Do you think it's time that there's a reform on the the qualification of barristers because of the financial burden? Well, the financial burden on a barrister setting up in a profession on his own is not as high as it is in other professions. Um, Take a dentist, for example, if you want to set up and practice at your own as a dentist, you have an enormous capital outlay for your premises, you have your equipment. Um, whereas if you want to be a barrister, you pay your law library subscription and that gives you your equipment, it gives you your accommodation, and it's a great deal cheaper than the capital outlay that would be involved, let's say, in dentistry. What you don't have, of course, is the guarantee of income, and that has always been so. And there's an element of luck and practice at the bar, just as in any other area of life. And if you're lucky, as well as being talented, then you'll do well. But I've seen talented people who weren't lucky. And I've also seen untalented people who were lucky and who made, made a go of it. So there's an element of luck involved in it all. But I don't think the financial burden is any worse than in any other profession. Um, and if you have student loans, well, so too does the dentist. Um, from the point of view of financial stability, certainly in the earlier years, being a solicitor is much more attractive in that if you are fortunate enough to get a job immediately post-qualification in a solicitor's office, you're then earning and you'll continue to earn for as long as you have the job. There's no such guarantee at the bar. And then even having got the work and done the work, you then have to await payment. And sometimes you wait payment, you await payment for a very long time. So there is all of that, but it's difficult to see how one can resolve that. I also think that the bar is going to go through and is already going through an enormous change. The Legal Services Regulatory Authority um, permits of barristers practicing outside the law library, and there is a small but increasing number so doing. And that has implications for collegiality, for discipline. Um, and I, I think also it, it may, coupled with this pandemic, raise questions over the, the feasibility of the law library continuing as we know it, because it may very well be that some people will now opt to practice outside the law library. I don't think that that's a good thing, but it's an issue which I think is more to the fore now, fore now than it was, let's say, a year ago before the pandemic. So speaking, uh, still on the topic of barristers, speaking from your own experience as a barrister and as a judge who witnessed many barristers passing through your court, what do you believe makes a good barrister? Well, a barrister is an advocate. And the word advocate comes from two Latin words, ad, the preposition to, and voco, vocare, to speak. So the first essential qualification that a barrister must have is to be able to speak to, ad voco, to speak to the judge, to speak to the jury, to speak to the arbitrator. But it's not enough that you speak, you must first of all be heard. You would be surprised at the number of barristers who do not speak up. Astonishing as that may seem, and frequently judges have to ask them to please speak up. Judges don't get any better as age goes on. The hearing doesn't improve. 
judges try not to do that because it's a bit embarrassing to say to somebody, please speak up. So if we get over the speaking up and speaking to, you're now being heard, but you have to be listened to, and there's a difference between hearing and listening. So in your advocacy style, you have to speak up and you have to speak in such a way as not to bore somebody. So in making your preparation, I always thought it's an attractive way of presenting to a judge or to a jury the points you're going to deal with so that you have a clear mind and you have it worked out in your mind where you're going with your submission. So you paint the roadmap at the beginning and then you proceed to develop it. Do not go on for too long because the ability of people to listen endlessly is limited and try to be focused, don't waffle. The next thing to do is if you're asked a question by a judge, don't adopt the politician's approach and answer anything but the question you're asked. It doesn't work in court. It may work on television and on radio. And by times my blood pressure goes through the roof when I hear interviewers asking questions which are never answered. It won't work in court, so be prepared. Preparation of the case is 98% of it. So be on top of your brief facts and law. Um, and I think that's the, the crucial part. You are an advocate. You're trying to persuade somebody of your case. So you must be heard. You must be delivering in a style that's being listened to. You have to have your homework done and try and be succinct. It's amazing how the advice you're giving is the advice we've, we've all heard before. And it's the, the basics that really make it. Um, so this is really my last question for you, and it's a tradition here on the Grad Life podcast. So President, I'll just ask you, if you had to recommend one book to any law student or any listener of the podcast, what would it be? Yeah, well, the book that was recommended to us was a book by Professor Glanville Williams called Learning the Law. And it's still in print. I'm sure it has been updated. It was regarded as the classic uh, for law students, giving a whole lot of information and a whole lot of advice. So I would say that's probably still a good book. But from the point of view of somebody who just wants to get a flavor as to maybe what law is about or what law is like, I bought, I remember, a series of books which were written by Lord Denning, the Master of the Rolls, for whom I had um, a great ad admiration as a judge. And in anticipation of you possibly asking me this question, I just had a look on my shelves last night. And the one that I've chosen is one, it's now 40 years old. It's this one, What's Next in the Law? It was Denning at the end of his career, looking forward over the next number of years. And it's really very well done. Short, snappy chapters, legal history, developments in the law and future developments in the law. So for somebody who just wanted to see what's law all about, I think I'd probably have a look at that. But for somebody who has already made up their mind to become a lawyer, then I would say Glanville Williams learning the law is still a good recommendation, notwithstanding the fact that it's been, I think it's in its 14th or 15th or 16th edition and goes back a long time. 
But more important than all of that, I would say, if you're a student in UCD or DCU or TCD or wherever it might be, and you've time on your hands and you're studying law, go to the law courts and see what's happening. It really makes what you're learning in the books come alive and will stand to you. And it may be that you will decide this is not for me or I wouldn't want to be a barrister, I'd want to be a, or whatever it might be. Don't miss that opportunity. Once again, President, thank you so much for speaking with me today. There was so much to talk about, and I'm sorry if we, we skipped over anything important. Uh, frankly, we could do 100 podcasts on your career alone. Um, it's been incredibly insightful and inspiring, and it was an absolute honour and privilege to speak to you. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm greatly honoured. I'm delighted to have made your acquaintance. And I hope that what I said will inspire somebody, at least one, one, one listener will be enough to pursue studies in the law. It is the most fascinating career. No two days the same. You'll never be bored. <laughs>